Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, all right, you guys. Uh, are you ready? Are you excited? Yeah. Okay, you guys, put your hands together for the amazing Steffi Nelson. Yay! Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out. Um, thank you to Skylight for having us here. It's exciting to be here. Um, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about the project and read a very short bit from my essay. Um, so Slouching Towards Los Angeles began as part of an art project curated by the nonprofit organization Land and the artist Zoe Crocher, in which visual, visual artists explored the idea of territorial expansion through billboards across the 10 freeway. I proposed the idea of writers exploring the same pull westward and to me, Joan Didion has given language to that impulse almost more than any other writer. So it quickly evolved into writers responding to Joan Didion. Then in the summer of 2015, they read those pieces at a live event with Land. Four years later in the summer of 2019, Rare Bird, local publisher, gave the book the green light. I brought in some more writers and here we are today. And four of the five writers reading tonight were part of that original event, so it's nice to see it come full circle. I'm just gonna read a very short bit from my introduction. In a 1977 Ms. Magazine interview, Joan Didion described being compelled by subjects that started as pictures in her mind that possessed a certain shimmer around the edges. She compared this effect to the way schizophrenics or those under the influence of psychedelic drugs are said to see the world when the molecular structure starts to break down. Writing is the attempt to understand what's going on in the shimmer, she said. I believe that the shimmer is a crystallization of some truth, her truth, and that Didion's writing transmits these truths to us. Through her words, we enter the shimmer, the place where the molecular structure breaks down and perception is porous, and we emerge with both a new way of seeing and maybe a new way of writing. Thank you. So the first writer, we're gonna go in the order that um, the essays are in the book because there is kind of a structure. So, <laughs> I should have let you know that, Margaret, but... Um, <laughs> so our first reader is Margaret Wappler. Margaret has written... Yay! <laughs> Margaret has written for Elle, Washington Post, Slate, The New York Times, and many other publications. Her debut novel, Neon Green, was shortlisted for the VCU 
Cabell First Novelist Award and was praised as witty and entertaining by the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steffi, and everyone for coming tonight. I just want to say, too, that Steffi um, really persisted in getting this out there into the world for a while. I mean, I, when was that original land event? Was it like a couple years ago? 2015. Oh, my God. So there was just many um, emails every once in a while that would be like, I'm still working on this. And I, I love seeing your persistence about it because I really wanted to see this book out there. Um, it's been a pleasure to read the other essays in it, too, as well, to be part of it. Um, so I wrote a piece. Um, oh, wait, hold on. Let me get there. I wrote a piece based on Joan Didion's essay called At the Dam, um, which is her going past the Hoover Dam and just totally reveling in the marvel of it, in the engineering prowess of it. And as I was moving to LA back in, ooh, let me think about this, 2002, um, I drove past the Hoover Dam myself. So this is the piece about those, that encounter with the Hoover Dam and the ideas that I was having about coming to LA. Since the August afternoon of 2002, when I first drove past the Hoover Dam, the oppressive heat surrounding the structure has never entirely left my skin or my psyche. The killer heat of the West, it almost got me. In a way I wouldn't see for a long time, the West did lay claim to a few things, and the remembrance of those things will slip into a day when I'm not looking, not thinking like a Paul. Driving up to the dam, the heat socking into the truck, the desert a dun-colored stain in all directions, my life about to rip itself fresh, was the first stage of my rebirth into Los Angeles, the West, an anxious, hope, as an anxious, hopeful creature. On the first day of our cross-country move from Chicago to Los Angeles, everything was a blur, with a few exceptions. The flats of Texas where we saw lightning jag from its cloudy nest down to the ground, Flagstaff, Arizona, where we stopped for the night and ate shrimp and drank blue margaritas in a carpeted hotel dining room so cold it was almost refrigerated. The next day plunged us into the desert. The insufferable heat was an air trap waiting outside of our U-Haul. We were vibrating across Highway 93 with everything we owned, living and inanimate, inside the truck. Outside, the temperature was 103 degrees. We were running out of gas. There was nothing in the desert. I didn't understand what was happening. Where were all the, the features? How long could not much of anything go on? Where were the living things? Were we going to break down in this truck with our cat Lima who kept slinking from the front to the back and then underneath the brake pad? Would we all go wandering in the desert for help, never to be seen again? Would we look like those cartoons of gaunt near carcasses crawling through the endless sands, whispering, water, water? Would we die out here? 
Would the West be inhospitable to two Midwestern art kids drawn to it by the cracked moonstone mysticism of Fleetwood Mac and P.T. Anderson, who somehow captured the true romantic nature of a 99-cent store at night? It's going to be okay, Adam said, when I panicked about making it to the next gas station. A sign had flashed at some point saying, next gas station a million miles away, and we had flagrantly ignored it. The empty, ta tank the empty tank sign had been on for several miles. We were on a detour from the reliable straits of Interstate 40, rattling toward the Hoover Dam, the gateway from the Wild West to whatever was west of that, the end of the continent. Neither of us had ever laid eyes on the dam. Really, Adam wanted to see it, and I wanted to make him happy in this small way. But as we drew closer to it, everything felt worse. I was still swallowing tears from saying goodbye to Lizzie, my almost sister, and Chris, a guy I accidentally fell in love with. Goodbye to Chicago. Goodbye to our house with the checkered floor. Goodbye to the nights I had spent riding my bike to a dive bar with Chris after work, him looking back at me and kicking out his foot in a wave. Goodbye to all that. I was headed west to transform into a better writer and a better wife. Two jobs I had assigned myself, one with an overblown sense of destiny, the other out of love and duty. But I was chafing against my uniform. I worried I was fundamentally unfit for this type of women's work. Maybe California would save me, would save us. Maybe on the fifth sunset, according to some legend as of yet unknown, I'd find peace as simply and efficiently as changing four lanes, merging, merging, merging in one fluid movement. I'd eat a Meyer lemon from our tree in our new backyard and taste the kind of clean grace that could wipe memory. I'd write a book where palm trees talked and wake up next to this person feeling right. As we got closer to the dam, the air conditioning sputtered out. The truck on its apocalyptic diet of gasoline fumes hurtled forward seemingly out of sheer physics. Anxiety tightened the screws holding up my neck, raked down my back in burning rushes. I never expected to be struck by an engineering marvel. In fact, I've probably said the phrase engineering marvel only a few times in my life. But when we drove past it, everything else occupying my mind was blotted out. The desert of Black Canyon erupted into a mammoth half bowl, a curve of concrete 726 feet tall that can be seen from space, separating the head of Lake Mead from the blue neck of the Colorado River. From our vantage point on the highway scant yards away, it rose out of nothing like a religious monument an altered human ingenuity and the belief that it'll always save us from nature, from an indifferent God. The missionary fever of the dam's construction, which had cost 96 men their lives, not to mention one dog who was crushed by a truck. How many other people and animals had lost their lives to it in secret ways, in ways that amount to quiet devastation, a body broken, worked to destruction so that it could erect an engineered body that nature supposedly couldn't destroy? 
Could our belief in progress exist without tossing human lives into its open maw? And is this always the way progress happens, with blood and plaques and tourists later? Now that we had passed it, saying nothing more than the occasional obscenity, only slowing down because we couldn't afford to stop, our circumstances seemed worse than ever. We had to keep driving, driving till we did find the gas station with seconds to spare. And now that we were safe, our truck satiated with the fossil fuels it needed to go on, I was glad, in a grim kind of way, to have seen it. There was no turning back now. I had to accept my decision to restart our life together with all of its unforeseen consequences. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great essay. Um, up next, we have Jessica Hundley. Once Jessica is an LA-based writer, director, and producer. She has authored books for Toshin, Chronicle, and others. In her journalism and directing work, she explores art, music, and film with a focus on counterculture, metaphysics, and psychedelia. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Steffi, and uh, thank you for persisting in, in making this book manifest. I was part of the first uh, incarnation of this project, and uh, I'm really happy to be here and to be able to uh, share this with all of you. So thank you. Um, I'm play up this. Uh, my essay is, uh, is based, uh, it was inspired by an essay called The Bureaucrats, uh, which is in the White Album. And in it, uh, Didion talks about the freeway system um, in LA and how it is, she calls it our only secular communion, um, which I think is such a beautiful way to phrase the way that we sort of share our lives but apart. Um, and as someone who moved here from the East Coast, I moved here in 1998, so shortly before you, um, I had never really experienced the kind of travel you do in this city, in a city. I'd lived in Boston, um, and I had grown up in Western Massachusetts. Um, so this essay is about Joan and about LA and about all the sort of things I love about them. So. It's called uh, We Dream of the Cloverleaf. Joan Didion is fascinated by the freeway, by the hypnotic sprawl of LA pavement. In her essay, Bureaucrats, published in the White Album, she describes the meditative rhythm of the lane change, the need for total surrender, a concentration so intense as to seem a kind of narcosis. And what feels like an ecstatic proclamation, she describes the freeway system as, as Los Angeles' only secular communion. I come from a place of cow paths mutated to asphalt, where long ago bovine whimsy dictates direction. I come from a place of pockmarked country roads lined with piles of ancient stone, rocks tattooed by the sweat of century-dead Yankee farmers. Where I'm from, a street is a place lined with salt-stained siding, sprinkler hiss, 
lawnmower, drone, guarding never used front entries, kids in the back, and mom opening the side screen door to shake out the crumbs from the tablecloth. At night, headlights carve close through blackness and echo across darkened leaf. But here, here the way is free and the sky is open. Here in Didion's Los Angeles, the city is shoelaced together, its farthest edges pulled up and close by a thin and graceful ribbon of pavement. The road here is long and true. It shoots arrows of cement through clusters of adobe and palm, burrows under hump mounds of dirt and deer grass to emerge back again into bleached daylight. It swoops down, around, and over, a hawk's pass through jasmine and smog. Here, we dream of the clover leaf. We look down from the tin can airplane, homesick for the grid. I think of Didion's secular communion. Didion caressing the 405 and her 1969 Daytona yellow T-top Corvette Stingray, wearing something long and silk and flowing, a cigarette pressed between lips. Didion in total surrender, her mind clean, her eyes clear, filled with a sublime reverence. It was Didion's Los Angeles that called me west. Didion's Los Angeles, in the time before the screens, before the barrage, before the bits and the pixels and the data. The communion then was just you and your machine. You alone inside your glistening steel husk, gliding over the shimmer of rising heat, vinyl licking the curve beneath the knee, the glare of Pacific hovering over hood, the head empty, the windows down, the only sound engine whine under the static AM radio. All the leaves are brown, the mamas and papas sing as you fly through the blue-green blur of California. Today, the rapture is numbed by the digital, the disconnect never complete, the cord never cut, stuck fast, unmoving, the pavement turns to quicksand. We wait out traffic with distraction. Our lips flutter into microphone, speakers beat deep in our guts, and our minds are full to bursting. The communion is still there, yes, our highway, the great unifier. Together we stand, united we drive. An act actress stabs the lid with mascara late for an audition. The Santa Anas blow bits of yellow grass from the back of a gardener's truck. An exec worries over his hairline while another car beside him, a woman sits alone and weeps, chest shuddering, her cries drowned out by the blast of the air conditioner. And sometimes, on the rare days when the clogged arteries give way to flow, when the sun glows Daytona yellow over a clear, clean line of moving cars, the rapture returns too. I put the top down. I turn the volume up. All the leaves are brown, it sings. I press the pedal gently to the floor. I glide, I caress. There is no resistance, no hesitation. Everything goes perfectly blank. The asphalt beneath me now a golden thread from the spinning wheel. Empty, elated, wind hot on the skin, I worship. I kneel to the holy trinity of car and road and California. And I think of Didion, of the self-possessed woman, hands light on the wheel, turning into the curve with elegance and intuition. Of Didion, wearing something long and flowing, 
cigarette to lips, mind clean, as she surrenders herself to the moment, to herself. I think of Didion calling me west, calling me here, to where the sky is open and the way is free. Thanks. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jessica. That's such a beautiful piece. Up next, we have Tracy McMillan. Tracy is a television writer, memoirist, relationship expert, and host of the reality show Family or Fiance on OWN Network, OWN TV. Her viral TEDx talk, The Person You Really Need to Marry, has more than 11 million views. Welcome, Tracy. Thanks, Steffi. Hi, everybody. This is amazing. I mean, this started for me and you um, on a walk around the Silver Lake Reservoir. We were talking about Joan Didion, how much we love Joan Didion. And I was saying, like, Joan's my, you know, she's like a spirit animal for, like, all women everywhere. And, um, and then I think we're not supposed to say spirit animal anymore, so I want to honor that for real. And so when she called to say, or emailed me, which is like a phone call, except 2020, and she, she said, well, could you do your piece? And I was like, okay, but I'm going to find a way to do it, a new way. So somebody told me once a long time ago, you know, I was thinking, well, what would I write about? And they're like, well, write about what only you can write about. And then also, I always choose to write about something that I'm sort of afraid of. Like, what am I trying to work out, and what am I afraid of? And I usually go there, and I'll... So I decided to write about my real age. <laughs> you guys, this is LA. Okay, so I'm like, I'm gonna write about being 55. That's what I'm gonna write about. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. So um, I decided to write a letter to Joan on turning 55. And I really was sort of, I, the part I cut out is about when did I become middle age? What was the moment I became middle age? So, dear Joan Didion, I was not one of those people who came to Los Angeles with a dream. To have a dream supposes you think something transcendent could happen in some realm, even if it's a realm when you're, where you're sleeping. And I didn't really think anything transcendent could happen to me anywhere or ever. Now, I came to Los Angeles because I just couldn't fucking handle New York anymore. <laughs> and let's just say no one was surprised when, a dozen years later, I was 42 years old, living in a one-bedroom apartment, writing television news just enough to pay the rent, with a 10-year-old son, no health insurance, and three amicable divorces. To my credit, I consider that last thing a legit achievement. <laughs> I was at a point in my life where I was deeply in need of some inspiration and money. Joan, that's when I discovered you. I mean, really discovered. I had heard of you, of course, but I had not yet read the White Album. I did not yet know about ignorant armies jostling in the night. I had not yet seen you standing in front of that Corvette. And then, one day, I had. Suddenly, I knew why all those English majors had been talking about you all these years. Not just because you were a fatalist and a beauty and a teller of truth, but because you made writing look and feel like rock and roll. And all I had ever really wanted to be Maybe all I'd ever really ever been was a writer. And so just about the time I should have been starting to prepare for my obsolescence, 
because we all know Hollywood has few good roles for women over 40, I am probably started to hammer on my own door, as you might say, and make amends to myself. I wrote a screenplay inspired by the demise of my third marriage. I got an agent somehow and started taking meetings, telling all these nice Ivy League children about my drug-dealing dad and my sex-working mother. Joan, you would have been proud. <laughs> For the first time ever, I dared to say what I really thought, and I even said it in print. I took the covenant between reader and writer to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, a covenant you mastered like no one else, and decided it should include the whole internet. Because why not? After a lifetime of playing small, I finally stopped whining, stopped complaining, worked harder, and spent more time alone, just like you told me to. The next thing I knew, I was writing television, had an essay go viral, got some book deals, wrote some books, did a TEDx thing, and became a person who goes on television and talks about relationships. I was embracing my inner you, Joan, if we had been born millennials, because who are you if not the original influencer? I once heard someone say that up close, the beautiful things in Los Angeles are ugly, and the ugly things are beautiful. I always thought they meant that the best restaurants are in strip malls, and even the most stunning A-list actress has probably, at some point before collecting her Oscar, laid down on a table, counted backward, backward from 100, and let a knife slice into her flesh so the camera might love her just a little bit more than it already does. But couldn't it just as easily also mean that here, and possibly only here in Los Angeles, the most dreaded life stage could actually be the most thrilling? Which brings me to the purpose of my letter. I want to thank you, Joan. Assuming nothing drastic happens between now and then, by the time you read this, I will have turned 55. Now that is a fairly big number, way past the middle of my life, if we're honest. <laughs> More like the very, very, very beginning of the end. I may not be precisely sure when middle-aged happened. Was it the meeting with the estate lawyer? The problem with my knees? My son's college graduation? But it doesn't matter because I am most definitely here. But I'm not scared. In fact, I'm exhilarated. Thanks to you, Joan. <laughs> Thank you. So great. <laughs> wow, these are just sounding so good, all these essays. Wow. <laughs> okay. Dan Crane is up next. Dan Crane is a writer, professional air guitarist, retired, and author of To Air is Human, One Man's Quest to Become the World's Greatest Air Guitarist from Riverdale Books. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Um, so there's not much of a preamble. Basically, this is kind of a meditation on uh, Didion's essay, 7,000 Romaine, Los Angeles, which you may or may not recall was about, largely about Howard Hughes. <clears throat> The Last Private Man, from Howard Hughes. <laughs> to Jeff Goldblum. <sighs> Quote, that we have made a hero out of Howard Hughes tells us something interesting about ourselves. Tells us that the secret point of money and power in America is neither the things that money can buy, nor power for power's sake, 
but absolute personal freedom, mobility, privacy. That's St. Joan in uh, 7000 Romaine, Los, An Los Angeles. It's a cloudless Thursday morning, and just after 10, Jeff Goldblum answers his door, shirtless. Hello, he says, drawing out the O and then letting it fall in his devious, bemused, and characteristically Goldblumian fashion. He speaks slowly, sexily. Let me put some clothes on, and then I'll be ready to go. He sizes up the singer of my band, a woman in her early 20s, grabs her hand, and flirtatiously remarks, this'll be fun, I'll be right back. <laughs> he vanishes like a vapor down the hall. We are at Jeff Goldblum's house to shoot a music video for our band because the man who manages Jeff Goldblum's jazz group also happens to run a small record label that puts out our music. We begged him to ask Jeff Goldblum to be in the video because I've been politely obsessed with Jeff Goldblum since moving to Los Angeles in 2004. In the past 15 or so years, Jeff Goldblum has become the most interesting, best-dressed, most enviable, most worthy of imitation, famous man in Hollywood. Am I right, people? Why shouldn't he be in our video? Naturally, Jeff Goldblum said yes. Not because he liked or probably even heard our music, but because he is open to such things. Jeff Goldblum is game. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum has not chosen to hide behind tall Beverly Hills hedges and wear baseball hats, sunglasses, and sweats, like most other Hollywood celebs. Unlike, unlike the Howard Hughes of Didion's essay, 7,000 7, Romaine, Los Angeles, quote, whose public appearances are now less frequent than those of the shadow, Jeff Goldblum didn't become famous in order to hide. Jeff Goldblum is everywhere. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is the obverse of the superficial LA stereotype. If Howard Hughes was the last, the quote, last private man, the dream we no longer admit, end quote, then Jeff Goldblum might be the last public man, or at least the public man's apotheosis, whatever that means. Um, for most, LA disappoints, right? You guys are here. Um, True celebrities are ghosts hermetically residing in mansions behind 20-foot-high ficuses seeking Hughesian levels of privacy. But Jeff Goldblum is a party, and you're invited. He is the celebration in celebrity. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is playing jazz almost every Wednesday evening at a small club in Los Feliz. It's right down the street. It's called Rockwell. We're going there afterwards for drinks. You guys are invited. After the second set, around 11.30 p.m., Jeff Goldblum hangs around until anyone who desires a selfie with him has an iPhone chock full of snaps. The photos will quickly be Instagrammed and hashtagged and garner numerous likes. I know, I've posted one. You look like a young Bob Dylan, Jeff Goldblum said to me once several years ago when I volunteered to sing I've Got You Under My Skin at his jazz gig, back when it was more of a karaoke kind of thing. I didn't sound like Bob Dylan. As I recall, I was quite drunk and forgot the words and sounded horrendous. But Jeff Goldblum makes you feel good by always calling you the young version of a famous person. <laughs> you become one of Didion's Hollywood denizens who, quote, once processed fan photographs, say, or knew Gene Harlow's manicurist. 
you look like a, a young Bert Convy. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum said another time he spotted me in the audience at his jazz gig. Uh, Bert Convy, in case you don't recall, was a frequent guest on the Love Boat. He had wavy dark hair and was kind of a hit with the ladies. I, I was honored. <laughs> you look like a, a young El Topo. Jeff Goldblum said to me the last time I was in the audience at his jazz gig. <laughs> El Topo, if you've never seen it, was the titular character played by Alejandro Jodorowsky in a Mexican acid western film, which the New York Times called a very strange masterpiece. <laughs> a few weeks later, I even dressed up as El Topo for Halloween. One person got it. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum loves playing dress up and cannot be discussed without referencing his style. A 2017 profile in GQ noted, quote, Goldblum has hipper taste than guys half his age, and when he stocks up on clothes at places like Just One Eye, a high-end concept shop as eccentric as he is, he wears suitably stylish clothes, like this Bottega Veneta jacket. Now, the address of this high-end concept shop, Just One Eye? Oh yes, that's right. 7,000 Romaine. Boom. <laughs> Today, the Art Deco former headquarters of eccentric millionaire Howard Hughes houses an upscale couture boutique. If you're a celebrity looking to conspicuously hide from the paparazzi and the hoi polloi, at just one eye, you can find the whole uniform at suitably absurd prices. A Gucci LA Angels baseball cap is $590. And OAMC draw cord pants, sweatpants, are $720. Green lensed aviators go for around $1,000. So, in the end, we got the shot we needed for our music video. Jeff Goldblum opens his door, we hand him a pamphlet, and then he feeds the pamphlet to his Instagram famous ginger poodle named Woody Allen. He holds our young female singer's hand for just a second too long, and then we move on. <laughs> to rephrase Didion, Jeff Goldblum is the last public man, the dream we love to admit. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, that um, 7,000 Romaine, it's a pretty amazing building. I just passed by the other day. The, Incredible tiles, and just when I was still there, right? Yeah. Um, our final reader is Caroline Ryder. <laughs> and Caroline has a very short bio, so I just want to say that Caroline was one of my very first writer friends in Los Angeles. We were members of the Style Council which was created by Joe Donnelly, who is another contributor in this book. And so I've been an admirer of her work and, you know, a friend for all these years. And here she is. Caroline Ryder is a British screenwriter, ghostwriter, and journalist based in Echo Park, Los Angeles. Welcome, Caroline. This is a... Ooh, that's better. <laughs> oh my God, everyone. It was so great to hear your essays. And Steffi, thank you so much for 
making this book happen because, I mean, more than anything, I mean, what a dream it is to read at Skylight. This is such an iconic bookstore and um, it's an honor to be here and thank you everyone for coming. Um, so I also read my piece at the original uh, event five years ago. It was really fun and beautiful and I actually had a guitarist with me because my piece was inspired by Joan Didion's essay about listening in on um, The Doors uh, recording at Sunset Sound and it's in the White Album which is just a remarkable collection of essays as well that everyone should read if you are in Los Angeles. It's just such a guide to the DNA of this city and um, the, uh, the Jim Morrison essay is mainly like three pages long and it just is so brilliant and so sharp and so funny. And would it be okay, because my, my essay in this book is kind of not very long. I wouldn't mind maybe reading a couple of paragraphs from Joan's original work. So, so I'm, is that okay, Stephanie? Okay. So what an honor to read Joan Didion. <laughs> Getting your phone. Uh, oh, by the way, troubling that um, uh, that his dog's name is Woody Allen. I mean, he's a creepy guy. Like, <laughs> suspect. I am a Jeff Goldblum fan, but I'm just slightly troubled. But <laughs> um, okay, so this is essay number three on page 21 of the White Album, um, and Joan writes. It was six, seven o'clock of an early spring evening in 1968, and I was sitting on the cold vinyl floor of a sound studio on Sunset Boulevard, watching a band called The Doors record a rhythm track. On the, on the whole, my attention was only minimally engaged by the preoccupations of rock and roll bands. I had already heard about acid as a transitional stage, and also about the Maharishi, and even about universal love. And after a while, it all sounded like marmalade skies to me. But the doors were different. The doors interested me. The doors seemed unconvinced that love was brotherhood in the Kama Sutra. The doors' music insisted that love was sex, and sex was death, and therein lay salvation. The doors were the Norman Mailers of the top 40, missionaries of apocalyptic sex. <laughs> this is such a great line. Break on through, the lyrics urged, and light my fire. So I'll uh, skip a couple paragraphs. So. Joan is waiting for Jim. They're in this recording session at Sunset Sound. She's writing a piece for a magazine. I'm also a music journalist, so I have some experience of waiting for bands to show up for whatever it is I'm supposed to be doing with them. And um, so she's waiting and waiting and waiting, and Jim is just not showing up. Then he does. It was a long while later, Morrison arrived. He had on his black vinyl pants, and he sat down on a leather couch in front of the four big blank speakers and closed his eyes. The curious aspect of Morrison's arrival was this. No one acknowledged it. <laughs> Robbie Krieger continued working out a guitar passage. Jo John Densmore tuned his drums. Manzarek sat at the control console and twirled a corkscrew and let a girl rub his shoulders. The girl did not look at Morrison, although he was in her direct line of sight. An hour or so passed, and still no one had spoken to Morrison. Then Morrison spoke to Manzarek. He spoke almost in a whisper, as if he was resting the words from behind some disabling aphasia. It's an hour to West Covina, he said. 
I was thinking maybe we should spend the night out there after we play. Sorry. That's, my, that's my Jim Morrison impression. Uh, <laughs> Manzarek put down the corkscrew. Why? He said. To this day, I now love West Covina in a way that I didn't before, because how cool is that? Um, and then the final paragraph of this little essay is, uh, Morrison sat down again on the leather couch and leaned back. He lit a match. He studied the flame a while and then very slowly, very deliberately, lowered it to the fly of his black vinyl pants. Manzarek watched him. The girl who was rubbing Manzarek's shoulders did not look at anyone. There was a sense that no one was going to leave the room, ever. It would be some weeks before the doors finished recording this album. I did not see it through. So that's the wicked essay. <laughs> I mean, the whole book's great, but this essay was really cool. And what inspired me about it um, was that this sense of waiting that I think, for me, kind of um, has been part of my experience of Los Angeles. I've lived here for 15 years. And, you know, if you live in L.A., you know what it feels like to wait. You're waiting on the freeway. You're waiting for the dreams to come true. You're waiting for love to happen. And it's such a complicated city. So um, I really kind of got inspired by that. Um, and it, the, this, the White Album was given to me by a woman who was a little older than me when I first arrived in L.A. And she had been waiting for a long time for things to happen. She did eventually make it to the first season of Top Design, and, <laughs> and then left LA. <laughs> but that was, she was an interior designer, and, and she'd been waiting and working, and people here work so hard, you know? Um, so I would like to dedicate my essay to my mother, who is constantly asking me what I'm doing here. <laughs> and uh, what am I waiting for? It's like, Mom, you don't understand. Waiting in LA is a fine art, so. Uh, so this is my piece, it's called Waiting for Jim, a response to the White Album. My first summer in Los Angeles, I was in my 20s, a young newspaper reporter from London, determined to woo the city, learn her words, her rules, her pleasures. I knew some of her myths, Jim Morrison and his black vinyl pants, for example, but I had yet to encounter Raymond Chandler's The Long Goodbye, Nathaniel West's The Day of the Locust, and the thorny bougainvillea that will make your fingers bleed. I had yet to sit with a left-handed lover, Musso and Frank, and watch him take the orange rind out of his martini, wondering if the city's capricious emotional tides would engineer a second encounter or just terminate us. July 4th fireworks crackled over Hollywood, and I got the feeling that this was a special day, the kind that friends and family share with one another. I had neither friends nor family around, so I ordered tequila delivery from Pink Dot and settled in for the night with a copy of the White Album, stretching my body out on the stained carpet of my warm bedroom apartment. <laughs> Why that detail seemed necessary. Um, I poured over Didion, cool mom in sharp neutrals, who gave form to my own unrest. I followed as she strolled listlessly ahead, an unblinking tour guide in sunny Hades, doula of catastrophic rebirth, pointing out the landmarks of limitless paranoia that crisscrossed the sprawling city grid, whose cracked thoroughfares invite us to drive towards a terminus called beauty, love, success, something. A few nights earlier at a party, 
I met a woman in her late 30s, well-established in the city. She took pity on me as I wandered around uselessly with my notepad. She wore white, drove a vintage car, and understood design. I still have a photo of her from that night, taken on one of those disposable cameras, her panties around her ankles as she peed on the corner of Franklin and Highland. Urine trickling along concrete, signs of life in a heat wave. Afterwards, I helped her home. Read this, she said, handing me a book, the white album. In the essay of the same name, about 20 pages in, Didion writes about the day she found herself sitting on the vinyl floor of Sunset Sound, the recording studio on Sunset and Cherokee, visiting the doors. Missionaries of apocalyptic sex, she calls them. For hours and hours, Didion, the whole band, and their entourage wait for Jim Morrison, lead singer, to arrive. Didion's leg goes to sleep. Ray Manzarek eats a hard-boiled egg. If only Morrison were here, then we could do some vocals. If only Morrison were here, were here, then we could just be groovy. Unspecified tensions seem to be rendering everyone in the room catatonic, Didion writes. And visions of my friend's pee rolling slowly past the Hollywood Bowl spring to mind, limitless and free, stoned, immaculate. <laughs> she was my first friend in Los Angeles. She gave me this atlas of invisible topographies, a guidebook to a city where magic and agony lay heavy on the air where future hurts take seed in faded red carpets, weird scenes inside Studio A. Jim Morrison finally arrives and no one acknowledges him for a whole hour, 60 minutes, no one says hi. How awkward is that? And how perfect, how groovy, how fucking sexy. <laughs> An hour later, Jim speaks. Do you want to know what the first words out of his mouth are? It's an hour to West Covina. No one here gets out alive. It's an hour to West Covina. The West is the best. The West is the best. Jim lights a match. He studies the flame a while before slowly, deliberately lowering it to the fly of his black vinyl pants. And I wish she were here, my friend, who crouched low on Franklin Avenue. She waited and waited, fodder for black vinyl crotches and men who cannot love until she could wait no more. And eventually she drove east, back to Florida, back to the small town where she once dreamt of living like Joan Didion in Los Angeles. Now I wait too for left-handed lovers, for dead bougainvillea plants to bloom again, that they may prick my skin and make it red. For Raymond Chandler to gumshoe up to my door so I can ask him, Ray, why do the clocks stop in Los Angeles? That's what happens in Studio A, he might say. You're just waiting for Jim, beauty, love, success, something, the sun, terminated. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Um, so I guess we're going to do a little reconfiguring and... I want to take a picture of everyone standing there, but we'll do that later. Okay. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to get behind a table <laughs> and um, answer and do a little Q&A. Yeah. Flip your chairs around. That'd be great.
See, it's Hi, all working everybody. out. It's all working out. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Okay. Um, thank you all for reading. Everyone did such a great job. That was really, really beautiful to hear them all. Um, so I asked a question at our event at Romans, and I thought it would be fun to ask the same question of you all. Um, Jory Finkel's essay talks about how Joan Didion's mother gave her a notebook at age five in the hopes that she would, quote, stop whining and start to write it all down. <laughs> In light of that, could you each share one of your earliest moments as a writer, maybe the moment you knew or decided you were a writer? I'll, I'll take it if you're still thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, very, very clear to me. Clear memory. Um, first of all, uh, yay, writing in notebooks. Everyone, and yes, yay, everyone here, but like, just, I feel like anyone who's going through anything in their lives, like one of the best things you can do for yourself is just write it down in the morning, write down your lives. It all has meaning, even if you're not Joan Didion. <laughs> um, so for me, the moment I knew that this unfortunately was my life path was when I was, I think, eight years old and I decided to write a pilot, or not, an episode of Dynasty. And I hand wrote it because I was obsessed with Alexis Colby because she was the coolest ever and she took no shit from anyone. And um, I think that's when I knew. And then I did a, a, a tried to write an adapted version of James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. So I was just kind of adapting people's work from a very young age. Yeah, <laughs> that's my Genesis story. Anyone else? Um, it's funny that I, I never know questions like the first time or the most thing or your favorite. I'm like, is that my favorite? Was that the first time? Um, but I would say that the, I remember being, I didn't really have parents. I was totally raised by like multiple wolves. And so it wasn't a parent that did anything for me. But I do remember Kathy Long who had the locker next to mine. One time in 10th grade, she looked at me and she said, Tracy, you should be a writer. And that's the first time I knew. I was like, oh. Now it took me a long time to get there. Um, and also, I was eight and I had an idea. I was like, I have a show idea. Could I mail it to ABC? Would they get it? But I was like way too practical and had been very disillusioned at a very young age. I was like, they'll never get it. Never mind. It happened. It happened, exactly. <laughs> Um, but I wrote TV news for 16 years, which is not real writing, but actually it turns out it was like the very best possible background. All the while, did I think I was a writer? No, I did not. But when it came time to actually write right, and somebody gave me an assignment, I could do it. And that was, I look back and all that writing that I did that wasn't writing and I wasn't a writer and there were no notebooks and just Kathy Long, that was all real stuff. So. Um, let's see. I mean, I, I, I wrote 
I wrote plays for my stuffed animals <laughs> when I was like five or six. Um, but then when I was maybe in second or third grade, my father gave me a journal um, that was, you know, real sweet and homespun. It had this like paisley cover and he's, and somehow, I, I guess through his explanation, I, I thought that what you're supposed to do with a journal is write about all the people you know. And so in the journal, each page is the name of a classmate of mine and then like my review of them. And I was withering, you know, like I was just a bitch about it all. Like, you know, Lee, like he's gross, he smells. Like it was not, it's not, it wasn't a very um, generous uh, document, but some people did good, you know, got good reviews. And sometimes I'd go back in and change it, you know, if like if Lee had done something nice, I'd be like, Lee's, Lee's, Lee's good, he's cool. Um, but I, I don't know, I don't know if there was ever like a, like a total moment where I thought, oh, I'm a writer. I think it was just like this accumulation and pile on to the point where I just like couldn't deny it. And I was like, well, all right. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. I, the only thing that po popped to my mind was that um, when I was in, f I think it was fourth grade, we had an assignment to, I guess it was to write a song, like a, just lyrics for a song. And so I wrote a song called Man in the Wilderness. And, uh, thought, but, but I didn't really write it. It was a Styx song. Um, <laughs> and I just copied the lyrics down from this really horrible, sappy thing called Man in the Wilderness. Sometimes I feel like a man in the wilderness. I was in like fourth grade, and so the teacher was blown away. And he was just like, this is incredible, this is really good. And I was like, oh, thanks. And I, I had this whole kind of rationalization. I was like, he said write a song. He didn't say don't use somebody else. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. And so, um, and so, he said, I want, I want to submit this to like the, you know, poetry magazine or something. And so I came home to my mom and was like, ah, this thing and the song. And so I was just, she said I had to tell him what it, that I didn't really write the song. And it was very sad. But I think uh, from that moment I was like, oh, right, I should maybe write the thing instead of just taking Dennis DeYoung's terrible <laughs> lyrics and pretending they're my own. Um, I think one of the reasons I can't remember is because it's something I've always done since I can remember. Um, I, I was obsessed with reading as a kid and I think from that, from reading, I just wanted to be able to do the same thing to everybody, what that was being done to me with these magical worlds that I was entering. Um, and my mother was a writer, my mother is a writer, um, a journalist, and, and that sort of ultimately what I'm the first kind of writing I started doing professionally, but as a kid I wrote a lot of fiction and then as a teenager I wrote a lot of angst-filled poetry and a lot of a lot of journals, stacks of journals that I dread, I still have in a box somewhere, but I think that uh, what you said is very true. I think uh, the act of writing is very cathartic and it's really hard to kind of, even now, after all these years, very hard to start. Um, there's always the rock that you're pushing away from the cave. <laughs> um, but the minute you get that rock to the side, you just fall in and there's really no experience like getting lost in your own world that you're creating. And I think anybody can do that, whether they're 
a professional writer or not. So you find yourself there. Thank you all. I have a couple questions. I just have one question for each of you guys sort of connected to your essays. Um, well, I was going to go, I was going in order of the, of the book. So it goes back to Margaret and Jessica. I wanted to ask you guys uh, the same question. Um, so to me, each of your essays is a response to that shimmer that Didion talks about that I mentioned in my introduction. Um, the image that is so symbolic and magical and represents an ultimate truth and an entire story of what you would find in your new life out west in Los Angeles. So could you talk a little bit about where that shimmer or that feeling lives in you now? Has it changed? And is there something new and different that you're following or feeling compelled by today? Like, is there a new shimmer? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the shimmer, I, I remember for a long time in the first couple years I lived in LA, because I came from Chicago, which is flat, I was almost spooked by the mountain horizon. Like it almost felt surreal and scary sometimes if I was in like the right mood to be freaked out by it. Same with palm trees. You know, I felt like, and, and they're not native to the land. You know, of course they got planted here. And um, I didn't know that for a few more years, but that, that was my first sort of feeling of, of being in this different, alien, exciting landscape. Um, I also remember feeling like the people in LA dressed really weird, you know, like, <laughs> like people felt, but in a good way, it felt really free and open. Um, and um, I guess I would say now, um, in some ways, the, the, the calamity aspect of LA and Southern California almost uh, intrigues me more somewhere in that danger lies the shimmer for me. Like when the wildfires have been happening and things feel really on this precipice of like always about to, um, just like the city's about to just burn up into cinders or at least the all of what is around the city. Um, I think when that happens, I, I at once feel really... Um, like intrigued by LA, in love with LA, like this kind of rapture about it, but then also like, why am I here? This is not safe. <laughs> and it's, yeah, I think in that push and pull there, um, there's something about kind of getting close to that precipice of like almost not existing that, that feels um, exciting. I mean, I hate to say it, um, but there's just something kind of electric about that. So yeah, that would be my answer for it. Yeah, yeah, like the act of choosing that mm -hmm. is sort of invigorating. Jess? Um, you know, I moved here in 98. I moved here from, from Boston. Um, and I'd grown up in Western Mass. And, and LA was sort of, I'd been here once as, as a teenager um, uh, for 
literally a drive from LAX to Bakersfield, so I <laughs> passed through. Um, and I moved here really because I, I had spent a lot of time, I grew up sort of between Boston and New York, and I, all my friends lived in New York, and I'd been in New York a million times. I'd you know, lived there months on and off, and I was like, I need to go somewhere that feels completely like something I don't understand or have ever experienced before and I want it to be a city, and it's gonna be this place. And at the time, in 1998, if you told anybody on the East Coast you're moving to LA, they were like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Um, and I got here, and I got a tiny, shitty, cockroach-strewn, stained carpet apartment uh, down the street in uh, Thai town on the wrong side of Franklin, not the right side of Franklin, <laughs> um, for $300 a month. Um, and I was able to live alone there for four years, and it was the most like glorious time. And I fell in love with the city. Like I fell in love with the weight of history being lifted off my back, the weight of the East Coast and the puritanical, and being sort of in this place where manifest destiny was what the sort of underlying philosophy, a place that everybody who was creative was allowed in. You know, there's no walls as long as you've got an idea to sell, <laughs> they want to hear it. Um, and that sort of energy and electricity, and I think at that time and the age I was, being here and having the freedom of not having to pay a lot of rent and having a community that was really supportive, that was the other thing. I think LA is a city built on a art form that's collaborative. Um, and so that is endured in that it is a creative community of collaborators and supporters and in a way that no other city in the world is. And I think that all still exists and I think um, unfortunately or fortunately the rest of the world has caught on to that. Um, but I think all the people from the East Coast who shook their heads that now live next door to me, no own houses, um, <laughs> I think uh, they've just made the city better too because it's this kind of like, it, it's, I, 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 it's, it's, my, it's my home now. I've lived here longer than I've ever lived anywhere. Um, and the shimmer, the shimmer that she saw is I think the shimmer that's been here from an ancient time, <laughs> you know? Um, but I think it needs us to sort of reflect it in our, in our art and in ourselves, you know? Thanks. I was just reading something about um, the theosophists who believe that the gold in the land creates a magnetic vibration. So maybe that's the shimmer. <laughs> um, my next question is for Tracy. So your essay is basically in defiance of what it supposedly means to get older. And Joan Didion published her most successful book, The Year of Magical Thinking, at age 70. Do you think that writing is a vocation that is more accepting of people, women in particular, getting older because writing improves with experience? Yeah, for sure. I mean, isn't that the best thing about being a writer is that no one can ever fire you? You know, <laughs> like, no one needs to give you permission to be a writer. No one can revoke any permission to be a writer. You can write your way into a job. Sometimes you can write your way out of one, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, 
I mean, just exploring the idea of age and aging in Los Angeles and trying to, what I see is like, I never fell in love with Los Angeles. I feel like this is an arranged marriage for me. And actually the data on arranged marriages is that, you know, they're actually very satisfying and fulfilling relationships, probably because people, they don't choose the partner out of their unresolved childhood trauma. It's just like they were, <laughs> they're just thrown together and then they work on it because they have to. That's how I feel about L.A. And I'm like, but the weird thing is, is that it gave me every single thing any, a city could give you. Like anything you could have, I, I got here. And my baby, you know, who's now a college grad or whatever. So I feel like the idea that you have this expiration date in LA. In fact, what I talk about is that we have the best food, we have the best Botox, we have the best everything. We have, I love the collaborator thing. You can find a collaborator for anything here. It's like there's all kinds of divorces and like people to date. Like you could never run out in LA, like really. And I'm, I just was like, I know we have all this cliche, all this mythology, all this like bullshit about Los Angeles, but as much as it's not the love of my life, it has so much to offer me and continues to offer me so much, even in my, whatever, sixth decade. And that said, you know, there's lives outside of this place too. And sometimes I imagine, I didn't get here till I was 30. That's the other thing. So I feel like a lot of the worst damage that LA does is to, to a very young, like if I had been a very young woman in LA, I think it would have distorted would have made me, I'm not, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect, because I was in like Minneapolis, where I'm from, and like Portland and Salt Lake City and places where you're not going to get all transactional with your body in Salt Lake City for a job, okay? It's just not going to happen. But in LA, I could have become much more transactional in my relational choices. It's like there's a whole world of things here that didn't exist where I was. And by the time I got here, I was a formed person. So I think some of the th places and ways that it would have kind of fucked me up on this side, it didn't get a hold of me yet. So um, I don't know. I'm always just determined to make the best of something. And obviously, you know, I, I was just saying to Dan before this, empty nesting is like being 28 without the anxiety. You know, it's like everything, time has told. It turned out, it's all fine. So that's it. Great. Dan, your essay is about public versus private personas. Do you think anyone comes to Los Angeles hoping for a quiet, anonymous life? Or do they seek anonymity after they're disillusioned by fame? I mean, you think of Howard Hughes, how he started dating movie stars and being a very public figure. Just curious what you think about that. Um, I don't have a quick, brilliant answer for that. Um, I think that the, I mean, I think that there's sort of, I don't know, it seems like there's two types. One that sort of reacts to to fame um, by like just wanting like they just want more of it and they so they do whatever they can to just stay and, like they feed off of it it's like a, a drug to them and so they want to be a, I mean obviously Jeff Goldblum is doing all those selfies I mean I, I often look at him doing these because he'll stay there until 
everybody's gone. Everybody will get a selfie at the end of this jazz gig. Like Elizabeth Warren. Exactly, yeah. Except different. Yes. No pinky yeah. shakes. Um, and I'm like, why do you, you don't need this. What are you doing? Like, go home. You got a, you got two kids. Like, but I, he needs it. Like, it's his, it's his um, lifeblood um, to get that kind of attention. And then I think there are other people that, like, got into it because they were pursuing some kind of art, they thought. And then they were like, oh, fuck, everybody wants to have a selfie with me. And I need to just, you know, buy some sunglasses and a hat and some sweats and, and hide out behind my ficus. Um, I've cho you know, I've chosen to just live out in public as, as a world famous air guitarist. So, you know, if you guys want a selfie, it's cool. Yeah. He means it. <laughs> um, my last question is for Caroline and then we'll open it up to questions from you guys. So you invoke several major LA ghosts in your piece, Raymond Chandler and Jim Morrison, as well as your friend who had to leave the city. So her ghost kind of remains. Do you think we live with more ghosts in Los Angeles because the city is so built upon mythology? And how do you experience them? Gosh, well, I, I have yet to do a sort of measurement of the ghosts in every city in the world. Um, I grew up in London, it's pretty ghosty. <laughs> ghosts everywhere, you know. LA's ghosts, I think you pick the ghosts that you wanna sort of invite into your life. And I, uh, the, you know, Joan is still with us. <laughs> so she's not a ghost yet, but um, I was always drawn to Los Angeles, I'll, I'll put it that way, and the ghosts of Los Angeles, for whatever reason, resonated with me, the music. I mean, music is perhaps a sort of a ghostly expression of, of history and of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, an eternal thing. Um, and I grew up in London in the suburbs with a gigantic eight-foot-tall poster of John, Jim Morrison in my bedroom. <laughs> And I know that he is not cool. I know that now is like a feminist and that he <laughs> sucked <laughs> and he beat women and was, yeah, he wasn't nice. And, um, but that being said, it, there's, uh, you know, judge, do you judge the art by the artist? That's a whole other conversation. So I was drawn to that ghost and I've been fascinated by the ghosts of Los Angeles. I was very lucky recently with my friend Siobhan, who's sitting right here, who recently recorded in Sunset Sound. Hey, Veronica. Um, and uh, in the same studio that Joan Didion sat on that floor and listened to Jim Morrison on that same console. And it was by sheer coincidence that my friend happened to be there. And for me personally, what a kick. Like, that is the reason I moved here. I love art and culture and music. And if, if you care about those kinds of things, if you're, the, if you're the kind of person who understands why you become an actor and then take selfies, and you know, there's something about fame um, that I'm still completely fascinated by. And Joan Didion, speaks a language that I think is eternal and she will continue to haunt this city, I think, for a very long time. Her words haunted me the second I read her because I felt sort of intimidated and insecure around her. I felt like she's someone that I would never 
feel comfortable around because she's just so cool and so brilliant and so fragile and um and that made me love her and um uh, yeah I mean I'd, I'm probably rambling at this point but what did that kind of answer your question what was the question again Yeah, well, ultimately, I think every ghost wants to have their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and um, isn't it? And I'm really pissed off that Joan doesn't have one. So let's <laughs> lobby for that, because every self-respecting LA ghost should have one. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, yes, it is happening, and so it is. <laughs> Joan Didion, I, yeah. Actually, the the stars on Hollywood Boulevard were one of the first things that I just, when I moved here, I remember taking this walk at night along Hollywood Boulevard. I was like, I can't believe I moved to a city where there are stars on the sidewalk. <laughs> like, it was just super magical. So, um, do you guys have any questions? Does anyone out there have a question? Yes, should we? You have to read the, the essay to get to the end, but um, I'm remarried now <laughs> to a wonderful man who's sitting right here in the front row and who I have a baby with. But yeah, that, that relationship didn't last. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I wrote, that's what I write about in, in my essay, discovering that on my mother's kitchen shelf, I mean, uh, bookshelf. <laughs> what was the book that just fell? Caliban and the Witch. <laughs> Women, the Body, and Primitive Accumulation. That sounds pretty ghosty. <laughs> Any more questions? My, what is my, oh, the city that I'm in love with? Oh, you know what? Okay, so I, I heard somebody say it like this once. When I go to Minneapolis, I'm like, I'm home. Or even New York, for sure. Oh, I'm home. Or even Portland, almost. I'm home. And here I come, and I'm like, I'm back. <laughs> but I would say my love, love, love city is Paris. Not the unique answer, but I have never, ever, ever tire of it. And I went in um, December, because I'll just be like, I'm going to go write, and I'm going to go take myself somewhere. And it was so, I know. No, I don't have a kid anymore, okay? He's, <laughs> he's a grown, he's out of the house. But, um, and you know, there's a metro strike, or there was, this is in December, 
And I couldn't get on a metro. I couldn't go see anything. I couldn't do a thing. And it was perfect. I just walked around and did my writing. And it's the best. So that's my favorite. Yeah. Um, I answer this question at, at Romans. So when I was in fifth grade, I published one issue of the Larchmontonian, which is the town I grew up in, Larchmont, New York. And it was like a three-page newspaper <laughs> with... I'm not sure it had any news in it at all. I know we had some recipes and some jokes, and I wrote the um, uh, what do you what do you call that? The logo, I guess. The, yeah, I wrote it in calligraphy because I'd been taking a calligraphy class, so it was like you know the New York Times with the large Montonian, and sold. I think it was 25 cents a copy. And, you know, I just had this urge to be a journalist or a, a writer. And then I sort of, I got a lot of feedback from teachers. I remember saying, you could be a professional writer. And I was like, oh, okay. And I literally just didn't have any other idea what to do with my life and I was like I guess I'm gonna be a writer I don't know it just it just happened I went with it I just went with the flow I studied poetry in college poetry and creative writing and it seemed I did not think that I had a big career ahead as a poet so I decided to try and get into magazines and that's that's what I did How did, how did I put the group together of writers? Uh, I just, I reached, I, you know, I have a large community of writers. I reached out to most of the writers that I knew and, and admired. And, you know, I say in the introduction that I, it started, I started to realize that pretty much every writer in Los Angeles, especially women writers, have something to say about Joan Didion because you, you just can't be a writer, a woman writer in this city and not be influenced by her, I don't think. So I knew that I had my story and I just began to explore it and everyone responded immediately and enthusiastically and and then this past summer, I had to turn it around very quickly. But it's a few people who I really would have liked to have in the book, who I'd sort of been talking about it with in the interim four years between the event with Land and the you know green light from Rare Bird. A few of those people were not available, which was kind of sad. But the the people who came forward and were able to do it in the time frame were just such an amazing group of writers and I'm really, I, I tried to find other anthologies 
other collections of essays about one single writer, and I haven't even come across one yet. Not, not even, I mean, much less there's no other book about Joan Didion, but there really aren't a lot of collections about a single writer. And it's been, I think it was just very, very fertile territory for everyone to mine and, and look through the lens of her work at their work and their lives and, and Los Angeles. It just, it just worked out. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to get the book to her and I've gone through a few different avenues and so far I don't have like send it to this address and she'll get it. You know, I don't want to just randomly send it to her literary agency. I feel like it'll just go in the mail room or something. Yeah, so I'm working on it. If anyone's friends with her out there, can hand deliver. <laughs> She's Upper East Side. <laughs> friend of a friend? Okay. <laughs> any, any, one more question? Anybody? Well, thanks everybody for coming. This is great fun. Now's your opportunity to go to the front, buy this book as well as there's many, many, many Joan Gideon books up there. So one more big round of applause for Stephanie Nelson and Dan Crane, Jessica Huntley, Tracy McMillan, Caroline Ryder. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.